Godridge Harbor. Begin the tour at the corner of Harbor Street and Beach Street, near the grain elevators. Feel free to stroll along towards the harbor and pier while listening. Watch out for traffic, though. This area is very busy in the summertime. Welcome to the harbor. In May 1827, William Tiger Dunlop, warden of the forests for the Canada Company, headed west from Guelph, cutting through dense bush, looking for a spot to build a port on Lake Huron. Meanwhile, John Galt, superintendent of the Canada Company, set out by water on the HMSB, a Royal Navy gunboat, with the same mission, to find a harbour to spur the development of this area, known as the Huron Tract. Two weeks later, Tiger Dunlop emerged here. Following the Menasatunk River, now called the Maitland, he found the river's mouth and this natural harbour. Standing on this spot, you would have seen the tall and red-haired Dunlop burst from the bush followed by two surveyors, axemen, and several members of the Ojibwe First Nation. Dunlop whooped with excitement. This was exactly what he was looking for. Overlooking the harbor on an elevated spot, now called Lions Harbor Park, Dunlop built a shanty which he called the Castle. A month later, the HMSB dropped anchor out in the lake, and a small boat came ashore carrying John Galt. Galt had spotted the promising harbor and wanted to investigate. To Galt's surprise, he was warmly greeted on the beach by none other than Tiger Dunlop. Together, the men strode up to the castle and popped the cork on a bottle of champagne Dunlop had lugged through the bush. Full of excitement and expectations, Galt and Dunlop toasted the founding of Godridge. It was June 29, 1827. When Tiger Dunlop arrived, he spotted the birch bark wigwams of Chippewa hunters camped along the river flats. The Chippewa, otherwise known as Ojibwe, had permanent settlements north in the Georgian Bay area and to the south at Walpole Island and Sarnia area. They traveled here by canoe every summer and fall to hunt. But they weren't the first inhabitants of the area. The earliest known settlers were the Attawandaran people. They controlled southwestern Ontario from the Niagara Peninsula to the Detroit River, with present-day Huron County forming the northern fringe of their territory. Samuel de Champlain referred to them as the neutral nation, they used skillful diplomacy to avoid conflicts between the Iroquois Confederacy in the south and the Hurons in the north. The Attawandaran controlled the supply of flint produced near Ipperwash. Flint was a precious commodity needed to make tools and fire. The Attawandaran exploited their monopoly on flint to become excellent traders. The Attawandaran, like the Huron, traced their ancestry through their mothers. Women could assume leadership positions. One legend credits a female chief named Jaconsase, or Queen of Peace, with preserving her people's independence from the Huron and Iroquois on at least one occasion. Unfortunately, the Attawandaran found themselves at a disadvantage as the British and French vied for power in the area. The French allied themselves with the Huron, while the British cooperated with the Iroquois. Without a European ally, the Attawandaran could not obtain iron tools and muskets. The Iroquois began to systematically destroy Huron and Attawandaran villages. The decline of the Attawandaran was hastened by disease spread by the Europeans. By the time Tiger Dunlop arrived in 1827, no Attawandaran people remained. After repelling Iroquois incursions in the late 1600s, the Ojibwe were the dominant First Nations presence in the area. The Ojibwe dealt effectively with both the British and the French in the 1700s. 
they served as crucial allies of the British in the War of 1812. On July 10, 1825, in Amherstburg near Windsor, after years of negotiation with the Crown, the Ojibwe signed Treaty No. 29, selling the Huron Tract to Britain. Chief Wawanosh was the designated signatory for the 18 Ojibwe chiefs who were present. The Crown then tasked the Canada Company with settling the area for Britain. John Galt was put in charge of this venture, and he recruited Tiger Dunlop. After the two men founded Godrich, the harbor was developed and prosperity followed. In the 1830s, piers were built. The area you are standing in was called Lower Town and became a beehive of fisheries, granaries, hotels, flour mills, warehouses, and lumber yards. Schooners arrived and departed daily, fueling the marine commerce of Lower Town. In the late 1830s, 600 people lived in Godridge and the town was undefended. It was assumed that the port's remoteness guaranteed its security. However, on June 26, 1838, Godridge was raided by a group of 30 Americans. The group belonged to the Hunter's Lodges, a secret society sworn to liberate Canada from British rule. The Hunter's Lodges were behind a series of attacks on Canadian soil, intended to provoke a war between Britain and the United States. The raid on Godridge was led by Colonel John Vreeland, using the American steamer General Macomb, stolen from a wharf in Detroit. The heavily armed marauders hit Godridge at night. They looted the waterfront stores and warehouses and caused extensive damage. While steaming back to the United States, the raiders were confronted. Pressed into U.S. government service, the American steamer Patriot ran the General Macomb aground. All but one of the armed men ran off. Later, another steamboat, the Governor Marcy, saved 11 of the raiders from a First Nations band who had them cornered on an island in the St. Clair River. Several of the raiders were convicted of crimes, including Vreeland, who was thrown in prison for a year and fined $1,000. It was lucky for the raiders that they were captured by Americans. In Canada, they would have faced piracy charges and the gallows. Godridge would eventually boast some defenses, including three cannons. In early June 1866, it seemed the defenses would be needed. Rumors of an impending Fenian attack reached Godridge. The cannons were manned and patrols scoured the shore. Military reinforcements poured in from the surrounding area. The militias assembled in Harbor Park, where the soldiers slept outside under arms with 60 rounds of ammunition. A trench was dug from Lighthouse Park to Harbor Park, and a heavy chain was pulled across the harbor to keep out enemy vessels. People buried valuables so they would not fall into Fenian hands. Area men flocked to Godridge with muskets, pistols, or pitchforks to face the threat. The rumors of an attack proved false, and the Godridge newspaper dubbed the situation the Fenian Fizzle. Ultimately, the Hunter's Lodge's raid of 1838 would mark the last time Godridge was attacked by a hostile foreign force. The three cannons are now decommissioned and can be seen overlooking the harbor in Lighthouse Park. The Great Storm was the most violent storm to hit the Great Lakes in recorded history. It raged from November 7th to 10th, 1913. The storm was produced by two powerful weather systems that collided over the lakes. The resulting cyclonic winds and blizzard were dubbed a white hurricane. Sailors fought gale-force winds blowing from one direction, while waves 35 feet tall battered their ships from the opposite direction. 
By the time the storm reached Lake Huron, it had already claimed over 50 lives and several ships on Lake Superior and Lake Michigan. The worst was yet to come. On November 9th, eight ships were lost with all hands on Lake Huron. At least 190 sailors died, making it the deadliest day in Great Lakes history. Three steamers were lost near Godridge, including the Wexford. As the Wexford attempted to steam through the White Hurricane and reach her home port of Godridge, someone ashore heard the shriek of her whistle. However, huge waves dragged the vessel further out into the lake. The swells overwhelmed the Wexford, breaking into her holds and flooding her engines. The ship drifted helplessly until it foundered. None of the Wexford's crew made it ashore alive. The ship wasn't seen again until it was found 40 kilometers south of Godridge, off the shore of St. Joseph, in the year 2000. In the days following the storm, 53 bodies were found on the Canadian shores of Lake Huron. Shipping companies paid out a half of a year's salary to deceased sailors' families. The public were more generous, raising over $100,000 to compensate sailors' families. On the Sunday following the storm, an interdenominational memorial service was held in Godridge at Knox Presbyterian Church. 1,400 people crammed into the church. Hundreds more doffed hats and lined the square for a funeral procession. Across the harbor, you'll see large blue buildings. This is the Sifto Salt Mine. In 1866, the Huron Signal newspaper blared the headline, Salt, Salt, Salt. Salt had been struck on the Maitland River Flats, sparking the Great Salt Boom. Peter McEwen, aged 26, had dug one of the discovery wells that yielded the mineral. He seized the initiative and created additional wells in nearby towns Seaforth, Mitchell, Dublin, Brussels, and Wingham. The wells used the evaporation method to extract salt. Fresh water was pumped through steel pipes down the well and dissolved the rock salt. The brine was flushed to the surface where it was boiled. The water evaporated, leaving coarse salt ready for packaging. The process required tremendous amounts of wood to heat the massive boilers used to boil the brine. The heavy demand for local lumber nearly stripped the county of trees. By the 1880s, Godrich became the lone producer of salt. The town beat out competitors due to easy and cheap access to lake and rail transportation. In 1876, Henry Attrill attempted the first salt mine in Canada at the mouth of the Maitland River. He correctly thought that mining salt was a more efficient way of extracting the mineral from the ground than salt wells. Attrill's attempt failed, and it would be almost 80 years before another effort was made to mine salt in Godridge. In 1954, the Purity Flour Mills operated the last salt well on the Godridge Harbor Flats. The Dominion Salt Company bought the Purity Mill and shut down its salt operation. Dominion Salt, in turn, became Sifto Salt, a subsidiary of the Dominion Tar and Chemical Company owned by E.P. Taylor, the wealthiest person in Canada at the time. In the summer of 1955, the Goddard newspaper reported mysterious drillings as geologists bored 13 holes around the harbour area. It was rumored that Sifto was testing the reserves of rock salt below the surface to see whether sinking a mine shaft was worth the multi-million dollar expenditure. Sifto's manager would only reveal publicly that the company was doing a geological survey. In 1956, the company revealed that they found a vast bed of rock salt of exceptional quality 1,700 feet below ground level. 
Godrich was to become the site of a new, massive salt mine. Sifto obtained a lease from the federal government for 2,500 acres beneath the lake, extending one and a half miles north, south, and west of Godrich. The Sifto salt mine was drilled, and production began in mid-October 1959. The mine was described as salt caverns, glistening white and blue with pure salt, with a ceiling supported by salt pillars. A drill and blast technique was used. Holes were bored into the rock salt face and filled with explosives to break the rock into smaller pieces. The pieces were hauled by trucks to a crusher to reduce their size, then loaded onto a conveyor belt to be crushed further in a mill. The salt was then hoisted to the surface. Decades later, the same technique is still being used. The salt mine has proved to be a very successful enterprise. A second shaft was added in 1968 and a third in 1983. Today, the mine extends two and a half miles under the lake and employs 500 workers. The mine has the capacity to produce 9 million tons of salt per year, making it the world's largest salt mine. In 2019, an exciting new project repurposed the old salt caverns left behind after mining. The province of Ontario, along with the town of Godridge and the private sector, have created an enormous physical battery underground to store energy at off-peak times. The battery stores energy by using electricity to compress air. The compressed air is stored underground in the old salt caverns. Then, when energy is needed at peak times, the air is released, turning a dynamo and creating electricity again. This system is designed and built in Canada. The Godridge site is the first large-scale project of its kind and is the proving ground for these batteries to be built around the world. It's probably not what Henry Attrell imagined when he sank a mine shaft here in 1876. Walk south and you'll see the old Canadian Pacific Railway Station, now a restaurant called the Beach Street Station. On September 12, 1907, the Godrich branch of the CPR officially opened. The CPR was the second railroad into the town. In 1858, the Grand Trunk Railroad had opened a Buffalo to Lake Huron line through Stratford, Seaforth, and Clinton. The GTR station was located on the east edge of town, on East Street. The CPR followed a more northerly route from Guelph to Walton, Blyth, and Auburn, before crossing the Maitland River and arriving at the new red brick station at the harbor. At that time, the station was located about 250 meters northeast of its current location, close to Harbor Hill Road and nearly snug to the lake bank, looking west. On September 12th, the Godridge mayor declared the opening date a public holiday, and a full day's program was organized. Three trains arrived, bringing a total of 2,700 visitors. Each paid $1.20 for the round trip from Guelph. A crowd of 2,000 cheered the first train's arrival. A streamer at the foot of Harbor Hill read, Welcome to Godridge. The square was festooned with flags and evergreen boughs and bunting. At Harbor Park, speeches by the mayors of Godridge and Guelph were followed by enthusiastic cheers from the crowd. For the king, for the empire, for the CPR. The steamer Greyhound took 1,500 people out for a cruise on the lake. Unfortunately, everyone got seasick, including the Guelph band. Afterward, seasickness was blamed for the Guelph baseball team losing to Godridge by a score of 14 to 1. Over time, train travel waned as automobiles became more popular. In the mid-1950s, 
passenger train service stopped on the CPR line. On December 16, 1988, the last freight train left the Goddard CPR station and the rails were pulled up the next year. In 2013, after months of preparation, the 400-ton train station was moved 300 feet to improve the view. The building was restored and the Beach Street Station restaurant opened in 2015, an instant hit with locals and tourists. The view from the patio is hard to beat. That's the tour. If you want some more waterfront history, take a walk along the boardwalk. Signs along the edge have pictures and stories of Godrich maritime history. To hear more about Godrich history in general, listen to the other audio tours in this series. Learn more about Lions Harbor Park and Lighthouse Park in the West Street to Lake Huron tour. Find out more about Tiger Dunlop, Henry Attrell, and the CPR rail line in the Menacetung Bridge and Tiger Dunlop Tomb tour.